Welcome to Idle Chatter, brought to you by the Machinery Digest, where steel and soil meet. A weekly podcast by a New Jersey farmer to all farmers and ranchers across this great nation. And yes, there are farms in New Jersey. Regardless of the crop you grow or the livestock you raise, we all have one thing in common. Agriculture runs on passion, sweat, tears, and machinery, and that is why the Machinery Digest exists, a no-nonsense, grease-under-your-fingernails educational website. It was created to provide a transfer of knowledge so that you can maintain, service, and most importantly, understand today's complex farm equipment. My name is Ray Bohax, and I farm too. It is time now to get under the sheet metal. Hello, my friends, and welcome to Idle Chatter. I'm Ray Bohax, the Hot Rod Farmer, and I'm speaking to you today, as always, from our farm on Catswamp Road in Hackettstown, New Jersey. Hopefully the sound of my voice finds things going well for you. I'm sure that the majority of you listening are probably well vested into harvest, the blessing of harvest, and that's great. Uh, We're still harvesting some of our fresh market sweet corn. I probably have about four or five days left, but today is raining, and I will not be able to go into the field and harvest. In that particular market, we... um, we really don't harvest anything in the rain, even though we hand harvest. But with the fresh market customers, that no one really uh, buys sweet corn when it is raining outside. So that gave me a little bit of a reprieve. But I uh, wanted to give you a little bit of a report from our farm. And please feel free to contact me at Hot Rod Farmer at FarmMachineryDigest.com and let me know how harvest is going on your farm and hopefully it's going better than it did on ours. Uh, Our operation is a little bit different than most people who will be listening to this podcast. Uh, Being a fresh market sweet corn guy, we do about 8 to 10 different plantings a year and this year we ended up getting only 8 in because of the weather. So I was running behind and I did, wasn't able to separate the plantings as much as I wanted to. So I tried to extend each one a day to try to make up for the difference of the uh, losing two plantings. So, but in essence, we end up planting over a window of between 40 and 50 days. So in many ways, our farm, our little farm is almost like a test farm or a test plot because for most uh, for the most part each one of those plantings because of the time frame between them sees different weather conditions and uh, just just a whole host of different different conditions that uh, less sun more sun uh, sometimes you get some rain sometimes you don't get rain so what have you so it's really uh, almost like a microchasm of a test farm and uh, sadly, our first two plantings that I kind of alluded to in uh, the last podcast, or one or two podcasts back, uh, really didn't do well. They, um, I look at, you know, and then again, we're a little bit different because I look at marketable yield. I mean, obviously, a grain guy wants, if he's a grain farmer, uh, field corn, he wants every ear to be big and full and full of kernels because he obviously makes his living by selling bushels. And the larger the ear will be, the more bushels that he will get into the hopper. But what we look at is marketable ears. 
because the fresh market customer is not going to uh, buy an ear that is small or does or has been uh, filled and pollinate completely and also doesn't have a robust looking husk on it so there's a lot of things that come into play when you're dealing with fresh market people and we also supply some uh, customers of ours that go to uh, farmers markets in the city and when you're dealing with that it's uh, the appearance of the product is 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 crucial and obviously the size of the ear of corn the corn that we plant is not supposed to be a flex ear but it does work out to have some flex in it and we plant a population of 20,400 praker most production sweet corn guys do closer to 24 25,000 praker from what i understand but we do 20,400 but on 28 inch rows so each uh, seed each plant is about 11 and a half inches apart but anyway the first planting just it it saw a lot of stress and it took the heat stress fine but just never seemed to materialize and also our fields are small and we have a lot of a lot of wooded areas forested areas around them and the raccoons really had a, uh, a field day with that planting and then the subsequent plantings as I got further away from the forested land uh, got better and also saw some better conditions but then on the flip side as I started to go towards the later plantings which most of the time are a gamble because you're losing sunlight and the days are getting so much shorter uh, they really start to to trend back towards the first planting not as bad as the first planting though but you know hey when I went in the field and I saw all of that obviously my heart sank I kind of knew it before I went into the field as any farmer would know from a distance uh, but I figured you know sometimes you get you know a 50 or 100 feet into the field and the whole situation changes but for the most part in those first few plantings it did not so you know being a christian uh in church we sing this is the day that the lord has made so i basically uh you know changed the words to that old hymn and i said this is the crop that the lord had, has made let me rejoice and be glad in it and that put a put a song in my heart and we were blessed and we did have the consolation is what we did harvest was beautiful so even though my harvestable yield was not there but we what we did harvest was beautiful so i'm very very grateful for that and we probably have about another four or five days but you know the interesting thing is that we really had very little sun this year and and i think that's something that you know that technology as as agronomy technology improves and matures and we learn more about how crops grow i know somebody had said and uh, that i heard someone say you know that a corn plant can't have a bad day if you want it to yield and this year <laughs> our corn plants predominantly had nothing but bad days you know we've learned to mitigate for stress and we've learned to mitigate for dry conditions but we cannot mitigate as of yet for a lack of sun and this summer was just a bizarre summer as far as just the amount of cloudy days and overcast days with no real uv and no real sunload onto the field really uh, took its impact on on the yield 
But on the bright note, you know, when you do hand harvest and you walk your fields, because we, I'm one of the pickers, and you know, I walk the fields, I get to see, I get to feel my soil and underneath my shoes and, and see everything that's going on, and I'm really happy to report, uh, I'm proud to say, so I'm bragging about it, is that uh, we really, the soil really came along on our property, and uh, our farm was like a completely different farm than it was 10 years ago by uh, doing proper soil testing, recognizing the, um, the need to balance the nutrients, especially the um, calcium and magnesium in base saturation, and also building organic matter through uh, cover crops and minimal tillage. We went to no-till, and it really saw a big, big difference in the tilt of our soil. And I was uh, you know, so happy when I'm walking, and I feel like I'm walking on springs on spongy ground. So I was really very, very, very happy with that. And, uh, you know, hey, like all farmers, right, uh, you know, over here in New Jersey, this is next year country. But uh, I think that's any place you farm that you go and say it's next year country. You always look to uh, next year with uh, hopes of things being better. And even if you had a blessed and very bountiful harvest, you obviously hope to improve upon it the next year and be blessed even further. So this is next year country. Warren County, New Jersey. So certainly this year is next year country. And uh, once I get done with harvesting, I will uh, cut down, cut down the crop, and then uh, I'll do some burn down for the weed escapes that I did have, and then I will broadcast my cover crop. And this year I'm doing a five-way blend: uh, triticale, crimson clover, daikon radish. Uh, rye gr- rye grass, two different types of rye grass. I'm considering that one species, rye grass and uh, hairy vetch. So I'm doing a five-way mix, and we broadcast that. And if we uh, get some moisture, God willing, uh, after I throw that seed down, I look like a hero. And if we don't get moisture, then it sits there and waits for uh, the good Lord to give it some moisture and then come up. So that's really basically it. So hopefully, uh, I know so many parts of the country are struggling. Some guys have great yields. Other guys are on the other end of the spectrum also. So just know that my prayers are with you. And I uh, pray that if you have a, uh, a very bountiful harvest, that you really uh, honor that and respect that and are grateful for it. And if you don't have a bountiful harvest on your farm this year, I... Uh, hope that the good Lord gives you hope for next year, because you're a next year country also. But to get back to what I should be talking about instead of my farm, is I want to ask you a question. And now I know I cannot hear you answer, but I want you to answer it to yourself. And the question is very simple. Do you want your farm or ranch to be profitable? And I paused after I said that because I wanted you to really think about it. And at first blush, you may say, well, that hot rod farmer is crazy. Of course I want it to be profitable. Well, I'm asking you to, to do some soul searching and, and, and truly, truly, and you don't, don't answer this right now in your mind, but think about it, is that do you want your farm to be profitable? And to what extent will you go to make it profitable? Now, I'm going to add a caveat to this. What I'm going to be talking about today has nothing to do with doing anything illegal, immoral, or unsafe. 
but what it is it's I'm going to talk about a mindset and what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you a little bit about the engineering community in the engineering community where I am from specifically the automotive engineering community I don't know whether I'm sure that the same thing happens in other aspects of that community but my roots are in the automotive engineering community and we have an acronym we have a term that we use and it is called NIH and that stands for not invented here if you think that you get a bunch of farmers in a coffee shop in the morning and that they could really shoot the bull and uh, and have a bunch of opinions well that's nothing compared to getting a bunch of engineers together working on a project and you could very easily see when someone is just poo-pooing something because they did not think of it and since the majority of you that are listening to this podcast are family farms or ranches I always want to make sure that I mention ranches because I feel that they're the forgotten farmers just because they don't have row crops but they are farmers and they are part of our community and they are an intrinsic part of our community so so I always try to make sure that they feel included because they are included they are part of this so do you want your farm or ranch to be profitable and as I said that could sound like an like a ridiculous question at one at, at first blush but the thing comes up is that are you willing to be open-minded enough and not suffer from NIH not invented here now as far as engineers are concerned you could come up with a theory or something or a way to do something or a, a, a design and in the in proper engineering you would want your colleagues to what I used to say take a shotgun and blast it I want you to beta test this, I want you to blast holes in it, I want you to find problems with it, I want you to find reasons why it cannot work. So I want you to, and that's what what I say, don't tell me that it's not good because you didn't think of it, don't tell me it's not good because we don't do it that way, and don't tell me it's not good just because it's not good. And I think we all have a little bit of this in us but it is probably the largest detriment to success on the farm and specifically when you're working with family members now NIH presents itself in many ways the most clear-cut way is that you let's say let's say you and your brother are working on uh, working on the planter and you want to uh, take off of something simple let's say like a no-till coulter and you're having trouble with it and the younger brother comes up with an idea to to to, uh, attack the task this way and then the older brother says no that's not gonna work we're not gonna do it we gotta do it this way so my question to you is that we all suffer from that but are you willing to work hard and to take that and and suppress that in your mind because you will never be successful or truly successful in my mind I think that success will always the f- your fullest amount of success will elude you if you're not open-minded to other ideas other concepts and other theories now a second caveat I need to uh, attach to this is that I'm not saying that you blindly believe in everything that someone says or you go through it and you just just uh, have no thoughts of your own 
but it's an idea of being open-minded to other theories other ways of doing things and then or even at, in the farm shop approaching a task in a different way now on the family farm we have a version of NIH which is called we never did it that way and if you go beyond the the obvious of that statement it really is NIH because usually the person will say well we never did it that way we're not doing it that way and and a few podcasts back I spoke to you about our farm is how my father always insisted on mold board plowing I mean part of that was because our soil was all messed up and we uh, our soil was dead and it's it's base saturation values were all off so it would get hard so yes we we ended up mold board plowing but he my father god rest his soul would never be never be open to anything that i had to say i could have said to him that today is tuesday and it's raining and it's 79 degrees outside because i just looked at the thermometer and he would argue with me or or just poo poo it because it was not his idea and so many times I see that happen in the farm shop. I see that happen in marketing decisions on the farm and planting decisions in every aspect of your life. Do you could employ NIH, which ends up to being a detriment to your, to your greater success. Now, a lot of people get confused. I have no, I'm using myself as an example, I have no ego, but I take pr- a lot of pride in what I do. You could be very prideful in what you do and, and, and not fall prey to NIH because pride means that you're taking care, you're putting your heart and your soul into something and you want to be proud of what you accomplished. And an ego means that you want to be right and you want to do it your way regardless of the outcome. And that is never a way to be successful. So we need to not suffer from NIH. And I think all of you, as you listen to this, could think of ways that you suffer from NIH or the people that you farm would suffer from, from NIH. And what I would like for you to do is that when you when that comes up and you're able to spot that and it's very easily spotted because the person doesn't do any it doesn't doesn't exercise any due diligence to uh to fight to to explore your idea or the other person's idea or you not exploring somebody else's idea and you just shoot it down right from the beginning that's no good we're not doing that that's not going to work that's a bunch of uh, foo-foo dust or i don't believe anything about that or what have you and you know when i run my seminars and uh you know, please keep in mind as an aside to this that part of the Machinery Digest and this podcast is going to be free workshops that will be sponsored by companies that are interested in you being successful on the farm. And when I run my seminars, either be it in the agricultural community or the automotive community, what I like to do is, depending upon the group of people, obviously if you have 900 people, it's, it's almost impossible to do. But if you have a class of around 30 to 40 people, which is a real nice size to work with because you could have real interaction with the audience. And so what I like to do is I introduce myself and I tell them why I feel that I have earned the uh, ability for them to at least entertain or listen to what I'm going to say. 
and I feel that's important. That's just like when you go into a doctor's office, he has his diploma hanging on the wall because he wants that's a subliminal way of him telling you or showing you that that he has an education and you should put some value in what he is saying. So I do that. I explain to the audience my background and what I'm hoping to accomplish with the, the seminar or workshop that I am teaching that day or those multiple days. And then I, I ask the audience, I go around the audience uh, and I ask them to, uh, to, to give us their name, where they are from, and then I ask them to be able to tell me what they want to accomplish from coming to this workshop. And then I take a mental note of that. And I like to take a mental note of where they are, where they live in the country, for the simple reason being is that in different parts of the country, different situations come up. If someone is farming at a high altitude, and I'm talking about something about an engine or uh, or a carburetor adjustment or a fuel injection or whatever the seminar happens to be, or the boiling point of coolant, if they're at 7,000 feet, that's going to be a, that's going to have slightly different uh, impact than somebody that's at sea level or near sea level. And then I also like to know where they're from because like I said there are different things that come into play uh, as far as uh, working with machinery is concerned and also your access to different equipment different technologies different services what have you so I like to address that in the program and then I'm very interested in knowing what they're trying to accomplish by coming to this class and you know keep in mind is that at that particular point, I also like to tell them that they need to be open-minded to what I am going to be teaching them. And I'm going to say, and I tell them, don't take it as gospel. I will prove to you every point that I will make. So, but then I also need to not suffer from NIH because I need to be open-minded to the needs of my students that are in that workshop. And that is the one of the reasons as I said that I do ask where they're from and what they're what they're trying to accomplish so the thing is that we all suffer from NIH now <clears throat> what are some of the biggest examples in the farm shop of NIH well when I have people contact me and they have a problem and this is you know it's funny how many parallels there are in the from the auto industry to the uh, to the farm shop because you're working on equipment uh, albeit slightly different equipment but you're still working on equipment and the same things come up so let's say arguably you have a uh, this this is a uh, a common common scenario a person has a uh, a problem with an engine let's say it's a gasoline engine and it's fuel injected and it's uh, giving them a, a giving them an issue so i'll talk to them or communicate with them and i will say to them uh what is the fuel pressure did you check the fuel pressure what's the fuel pressure and they said then they say oh it's good well as an engineer if you tell me something is good and do not put a metric a number after and say yes it's good it's within specifications it's between 45 and the spec is 45 to 50 pounds and I'm at 46 pounds then I know you checked it if 
you do if you tell me it's good that means that some some way you've gleaned that the engine is getting fuel i mean whether you press the schrader valve on the fuel rail and you had gasoline shooting your eye or the spark plugs or whatever what have you in that particular example but that's not telling you anything and really what that is is nih presenting itself in a different way it's not really not invented you don't want to believe that the fuel pressure could be the problem and it's the paradox of you wanting to fix the machine, but you don't want to believe that the fuel pressure is the problem, and you're not going to bother to check it, or you don't know how to check it, and then you come and you say, well, the fuel pressure is good. Same thing happens with electrical circuits. I had a, a farmer recently contact me, and I think it was actually one of the uh, special delivery segments on the podcast, and he had a problem, uh, a phantom problem with the uh I think some electric drive on a planter, or uh, I think it was a uh, a display or something for 2020 seed cents or something of that nature or a different brand. But, you know, I communicated with him afterwards off the podcast, and, uh, you know, I was telling him to check the grounds. He says, the grounds are good. Well, how do you know the grounds are good? Did you do a voltage drop test on the ground? Did you do anything? Do you have numbers for me? No, 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 I know they're good. I looked at them, I cleaned them, and I, they're, they're, they're good. Well, that doesn't mean anything, because you have corrosion back up into the wiring harness, and you could have the uh, the actual eyelet uh, polished like a diamond, and it, it makes no difference because you have, a high, you have a voltage drop there. So the thing basically is, but that's a different way that NIH presents itself. Now, the other way NIH presents itself is by simply not wanting to believe someone that has more knowledge in a particular area than you do. You know, and uh, so many times people say men are afraid to ask for instructions. Well, maybe I'm not that kind of a man because I'm never afraid to ask for instructions because the Bible tells us in Scripture, and I cannot tell you where it says it, sadly, but it says a wise man will seek the counsel of others. And the thing is that is that by you not wanting to believe someone that has, or at least, uh, at least taking the step to try to to see if that person is right, then that is a way of suffering from NIH. That you don't want to believe that because nah, 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 it's not that, it can't be that, or what have you. And um, and it's it's that that's NIH. And would or for me as a magazine writer, as a technical writer, if I don't want to read somebody else's, you know, and I read all the magazines. I get, you know, I write for Successful Farming, as you know. I get Progressive Farmer, Farm Journal, No-Till Farmer. I get a whole bunch of tillage, uh, not tillage, uh, forage newspapers and magazines. And, you know, somebody writes an article, and if, let's say if it's an article about equipment or about a me- some mechanical apparatus, I read that. I read that with a 100% open mind. I don't want to, I don't, I don't you know, close my mind to it and say, well, I'm not going to read that because I'm a technical writer also. And you know, as, an, as an aside to this, if you basically look at what the high-yield farmers are doing, is that they're basically taking away, and they're not suffering from NIH. They're, they're, they will do what, you know, what President Reagan used to say, trust but verify, that they'll look at everything and say, well, hey, you know, is boron my limiting factor? Let's let's see what, what boron is doing, or is this my limiting factor, or is my seed-to-soil contact not good? And I'm asking you to do the same thing in the farm shop. That, uh, and the, the first step in, in eradicating NIH 
from your repairs, service, maintenance, anything you're doing in the farm shop is to always have shop manuals for your equipment. And I always tell people that as a technical writer, if people would read, I would be rich. But so many times people are afraid to either read the instructions, they don't want to read the instructions with a part they've got or a product that they bought, or open a shop manual to see what's going on and what the factory diagnostic routine is or to look for a schematic or what have you. When I get a product, let's say if I, I'm taking an engine apart and I, I get a head gasket, uh, putting a head gasket on, or, or, or let's not even talk about head gaskets. Let's talk about crop protection chemicals. So, you know, if I'm, if I'm buying a jug of glyphosate, you know, and I bought the same, I bought that for years and used that for years, or if I'm, or if I'm uh, using my pre-emerge, I use Acuron from Syngenta. You know, each year I take that, take that, uh, that pamphlet off the label and I, and I look through it and I read what's applicable to what I'm doing because sometimes they will change something and it's and I'm, I'm not going to suffer from NIH I want my farm to be successful I'm not going to make a mistake because I didn't want to take five minutes and and look through the the label and read the read the brochure attached to the label the instructions attached to the label of a, of a crop protection chemical because by the chance they may have changed something and I have found changes and in, in chemicals I mean uh, or in in applications and I have called the company and asked them why I they changed that and what I need to do so the thing that I want to bring this full circle is that I want your farm to be profitable and it that sounds very trite and it and it, it doesn't sound like you know like much of anything but the whole idea is that for America to be strong and if you've listened to my podcast or went on my website and know that I am American first, I'm American farmer, so the word, as President Trump said, the word American comes first. And I want you to be successful. And I want you to be not only a high-yield farmer, I want you to be a high-profit farmer. And the whole premise of this whole journey with this Farm Machinery Digest is for you to recognize that it's not the profit that you make, it's the profit that you keep and if you have a high crop yield and you have efficiencies with your machinery then your profit will be the highest it potentially could be and when you are suffering from NIH when your co-workers or family members or co-partners in the business are suffering from NIH then you're getting nowhere fast you know and in an engine we have a term every engine it's called volumetric efficiency and that's how filled the cylinder is with charge and i'm going to do a uh, a podcast and an article on the farm machinery digest learning series about this but in quickly in a nutshell let's say for easy arithmetic that you have a 300 cubic inch engine most production engines that are normally aspirated means there's no turbocharger or supercharger only only fill that cylinder about 80 percent so that would be three times eight is so at peak torque that cylinder is about 80 percent filled and every other operating state it's less than that so basically in essence you're only using 240 cubic inches of that 300 cubic inch potential and 
and that's called volumetric efficiency so you're measuring how full the cylinder bore is and that's a whole that would be a whole podcast i mean it could be three podcasts but uh the whole podcast on itself and if you basically look at agriculture we're looking for volumetric efficiency you're looking for if you i'm a corn farmer so i'm looking to get as many kernels of corn from that seed that i put in the ground if you're if you're a dairyman you're looking for as much milk from that cow for the food and water that she's ingesting so that is a volumetric and in engines we call that volumetric efficiency and the thing basically is is that unless you are open-minded and truly want to and to explore the possibilities and the thought process that others have to make your farm great again that you will never have a hundred percent volumetric efficiency in your operation it's going to be impossible because you're going to spend more time poo-pooing an idea that somebody has and it may be as simple as let's let's jack up the combine this way to get the tire off or let's you know let's try putting the belt on this way instead of the way we've been doing it and not insisting upon and feeding your ego of saying that's not going to work and as i said in the beginning there is a caveat that attaches to it i'm not saying that every lame brain idea that comes up that you basically go and you chase that like a butterfly but the fact of the matter is is that you will know yourself when you are when you are exercising nih when you are just shooting something down for no particular reason other than because you did not think of it and or it's not the way that you've done it so i hope that you that this is a simple podcast it's not really anything in detail it's more of a thought process and i would i would welcome any engagement with you you could email me at hot rod farmer at farmmachinerydigest.com and we could discuss NIH. I'd be more than happy to talk to you about it on the telephone. But please, please do not let NIH impact your farm or ranch operation. We have enough obstacles as there as there is with uh, with with the weather, crop prices, or just dealing with everything else other than being our own worst enemy. And just remember, volumetric efficiency that you need to have volumetric efficiency in that farm shop because I don't care how profitable, how much yield you have, how great crop prices are, if you lose it, if you have the window open, if you have the, the, the shop door open and all and everything is flying out the door, the end result is that you have a very weak or negative balance sheet and I do not want you to have that. I want America cannot be strong, as I said, without strong farms, and nothing makes me prouder than seeing an efficient, strong farming community in this country. So now, with that said, I will move on to our special delivery segment. I have two letters here, uh, and these ones I chose actually came to me uh, through Successful Farming because they watched me as the engine man. On the successful farming TV show on RFD, and we have this. This is from Rick and Janet, and I have to learn how to print these larger. It says we have a 1967 John Deere 3020 gas tractor. That's a that's a nice machine. I'm adding that. It no longer gets used for field work or other farm chores. It's just simply a show tractor. So because of that, it only gets started once every couple of months. 
and it does not ever get to full RPM except when we take it up and down the road every couple of months to make sure it is running okay. What minimum RPM does it take before the generator will send the charge to the tractor battery? How long do we need to drive the tractor at that RPM to get the battery to a full charge? Should we disconnect one battery cable between startups to keep the battery from discharging? Thanks in advice. Uh, thanks in advance for your reply, Rick. Well, uh, thank you for uh, contacting me, Rick, and for also watching me on the TV show. Uh, <clears throat> in essence, what you need to do is that the if it's a 1967, then it's a 12 volt system, and I'm sure it has an alternator. I'm not a. I'm, I'm pretty confident it has an alternator, not a generator. A, uh, regardless of it has an alternator or a generator, uh, it, it's going to have a voltage regulator. Uh, some early generator systems had a cutout, and uh, but I think by 1967 uh, you probably had a voltage regulator. But my advice to you is going to uh, apply regardless if it's got a generator, alternator, cutout, or or a voltage regulator. What you basically need to do is get your voltmeter and you need to start the tractor and you need to have just hook up the voltmeter the red lead to the positive on the battery and the black lead to the negative if you hook it up wrong you're not going to hurt anything you just get a minus sign on your uh, digital voltmeter scale and you need to see uh, most charging systems are designed to put out between 14.3 to 14.6 volts that may be a little bit lower maybe around 14 volts you need to put in more voltage than the 12 volt battery is to keep it fully charged so at that particular point you will be able to determine on that tractor what RPM you will be putting out maximum voltage and you could say so I would idle it and see what it's at and then I would bring the RPM up slowly and I would watch the voltmeter one particular point that's going to plateau and then the voltage is not going to go any higher and then you would be able to determine for that particular machine now obviously John Deere has a specification on it but on a 50 year old machine you know things change and, and what have you so it should be near the specification but I would probably say that anything that's a fast idle probably uh, a couple of hundred rpm over the idle uh, idle s speed would probably have that alternator at 80 to 90 percent with a charging system at 80 to 90 percent of its output capacity and uh because tractors really weren't designed to idle for too long and and they as an engineer what you basically do is you identify the maximum RPM that the engineer is going to run and then you look at what it's going to run at most of the time and then you design your pulley ratios so your crank pulley your water pump pulley your alternator pulley to get the desired uh, RPM for that particular device be it the water pump or the alternator so on most uh, equipment like that that's lower RPM that they have a higher numeric pulley ratio so that they will turn the alternator or the water pump faster than you would let's say on a car engine or a truck engine and that is to keep so to keep that system functioning properly but that's what I would do and then you could determine that uh, very easily and say we're going to need to run this at you know 1200 RPM whatever it may be to get 80 or 90 percent of the voltage output the next question that you have is how long do we need to drive the tractor at, R at that RPM to get the battery fully charged? That is an open-ended question and I'm, I'm, I'm not, not skirting around it. But 
but it's going to all depend upon the state of charge that the battery began with and uh, obviously the output and it's not only going to be voltage it's going to be amperage also and when you check the alternator with the voltmeter you're not going to be able to check the amperage output uh, if the tractor may have an amp meter but the voltage will be a good indicator and uh, it's going to be de depending upon the state of charge of the battery the design of the battery how old the battery is and what have you but I would say that and also how easily the tractor starts if you crank it if it's a hard starter and you crank it crank it crank it and you pull a lot of juice out of that battery then obviously it's, it's going to take a longer time for it to recover so there is a lot of things that are coming to mind as far as that is concerned but if you have a battery that's in good condition and a charging circuit that's that's working properly you should be able to bring that battery back to full state of charge to fully recover it from whatever the current draw was during starting and I would say probably in 10 minutes of running now keep in mind back in 1967 those systems were not on a farm track they were not the highest output charging systems because there was not much electrical load but I would say in 10 or 15 20 minutes you should be able to get that up to full charge your next question should we disconnect one battery cable between startups to keep the battery from discharging uh, you do not have to do that because there should be nothing that is going to uh, pull that battery down when it when the ignition is shut off if you think that there is a very simple test is to disconnect the battery ground cable and put a test light in series so that means have the test light on the negative cable of the battery and then connect it to the battery ground cable if that light illuminates then there is a drawer in that system and is taking some voltage with the key shut off but on a farm tractor like that I doubt very much if there's any draw and if there is zero draw then basically disconnecting the battery is going to do absolutely nothing for you other than make you happy and think that you're accomplishing something giving you a little bit more work every time you want to start it I particularly don't like to disconnect batteries because I feel that if it's disconnected you'll it's another step to use the machine and then you human nature being what it is you tend not to use it as often because ah, I gotta go get the wrench I gotta connect it what have you so you could check it for a draw that way if you and if the test light illuminates then uh, then what you would do is you go around and disconnect things to see what's staying powered up but I doubt very much if that is the case uh, what I would say to you my suggestion to you is that um, you could either get one of those battery tenders or what you could basically do is every time you use the tractor if you have a regular conventional battery charger that has a degradable rate of charge which most of them do or do today the past 20 years that they're able to sense the battery condition and they 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 cut down the amperage into the battery as the battery starts to come up to charge then you could charge it for a half hour or so uh, every time before you run it and that's basically it you don't have to uh, you know go crazy with it and that should that should take care of everything and you should be able to uh, have that tractor uh, run well and uh, not be concerned with the battery whatsoever 
situation already and also another thing is that when it comes time to buy a new battery for it you may want to consider getting a deep cycle battery even though it's really not meant for vibration like a tractor but a deep cycle battery will be able to give uh be able to maintain its amperage output for a longer period of time and uh, over a conventional type of battery so if, I, if you have any more questions, please feel free to contact me. I'll be more than happy to go over that with you now that I probably confused you. The next letter we have is from Trish in American Fork, Utah. It says, Hi, not winning our battle with fuel getting into the oil pan. Now she says that it's a 2016 Freightliner with a Detroit diesel electronic motor, electronically controlled engine. Uh, let me start again. Not winning our battle with fuel getting into the oil. Had an O-ring issue, took it to Freightline, a dealer, uh, where they verified fuel was getting into the oil and they replaced an O-ring. There was also an issue of the coolant hoses collapsing after the vehicle was shut off. They said that was due to some port plugged off. Had the vehicle back approximately four days and it's doing the same exact thing, making its own oil, which we know is diesel fuel leaking into the oil system. Today, it threw a fault code fuel level sensor problem. It idles rough. It has metal shavings on the dipstick. Oh, boy. And no real loss of power per se. Uh, is this potentially an issue that could be a warped head or cracked head that we're dealing with? Or is this an issue with the injectors themselves? Or could this possibly be a fuel system issue? Any advice would be extremely helpful as we are pulling our hair out with this particular unit. Thank you in advance for your time. And your expertise looking forward to your reply well really I'm, first of all Trish I'm really sorry having so much issues uh, I don't know if you have a typo on this I mean it's a 2016 Freightliner I mean so that's you know at most a two-year-old vehicle two-year-old truck uh, you don't say what series Freightliner is and just say it has a Detroit in it uh, the thing is what you need to do is first of all number one I mean, if you have metal shavings, I was going to tell you do an oil analysis. If you have truly have metal shavings on a dipstick, I mean, that motor is is wiping the bearings and wiping everything out. So that's that's really really an issue. So, um, but to get to your to get to your question at hand is that I don't know what the Freightliner dealer did, but the proper way would be for you to for them to dump that oil out of that engine and then use put a dye in the fuel and use a black light to determine where the fuel is leaking uh like i said you didn't tell me what engine it has if it has the return line through the cylinder head then obviously it could be leaking there it could be leaking what kind of lift pump it has but you need to use the, the simple thing is that you need to use a black light test to determine where it's leaking but my that's the least of my concerns. Um, the metal, uh, the metal on the dipstick, the metal shavings on the dipstick is really, really. I mean, that's you know, that's like seeing sudden death syndrome in your soybeans. I mean, that is not good, and it's that's not going to heal itself. And it's a uh, it's a new truck, and it's an you know an expensive engine. So, to to answer your question, uh, and to anybody else that's listening, is that. You know the proper way to determine that but first you gotta get that polluted oil out of the uh out of that um engine matter of fact i did a segment for the successful farming show uh engine main segment and i uh, did a segment on uh 
showing oil a fuel diluted oil so you could look that up on the internet and you could just see the the adverse effect of that but the most important thing is get that oil out of there and do a fuel dye test with a black light and then go from there and what i will do trish is that i will uh email you directly and uh ask you to give me a call so that we can uh, discuss this i get a little bit more information so listen, hey, this brings us to the end of today's podcast. They're getting a little bit longer than I had hoped to. I uh, better not suffer from NIH and 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 tune up my tune up my uh, deal here. But I just want you to know that I really appreciate everyone that's listening and visiting the website. And uh, this this podcast and website is only a few weeks old. And thankfully, uh, by God's grace, we're getting a lot of great feedback and a lot of interaction. And I'm very very appreciative appreciative of that follow us on twitter i'm new to twitter i didn't know that i have to follow other people i did it for two weeks and wondered why i had no response but hot rod farmer on twitter you know follow us and uh, greatly appreciate it and next week's podcast is going to be about understanding horsepower so uh i'll give you a heads up we all buy horsepower but we drive torque So listen, you have a blessed, blessed day. It's time for me to uh, make some smoke and get out of here.